the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. I'm coming at you on am860theanswer.com. That's am860theanswer.com. And this is Talk Radio Interactive. We're at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. We are an iHeart station. And you can reach me worldwide on the web, 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time, at drbillradiomd.com. Click Listen Live or Join Me or whatever button you see. That's drbillradiomd.com. We're working on it, baby. We're getting there. Well, of course, the week has been occupied with the Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford situation. And Bill and I were talking about it just before the show. And Bill said, was he the only one who didn't think she was telling the truth? And I I said, no, I don't think so. I I think that it was an extremely well-rehearsed monologue. And we have to remember that this is not a court of law, so that the rules of court that you and I would obey if we went into uh, a courtroom and uh, Florida District Court here in our state or in any other state that you would have certain rules that you would have to obey by. One being that you would not be able to read an opening statement. You can't carry notes with you onto the witness stand. And having initially seen that, I think the stage was set for her to deliver what seemed to me to be a very well-rehearsed monologue and well-rehearsed answers to the questions that were posed. Uh, I didn't listen to the to the meat of it, but more I looked at her facial expressions and her intonations and how she was responding. And a couple of things came across to me. One, I thought this was extremely well-rehearsed, as I said. Number two, I think her hairstyle was perfect for allowing her to touch her face without seeming to indicate that she was not telling the truth or that she was uh, struggling with memories or that she in some way was being deceptive or evasive or elusive because touching the face is one way that we judge whether or not people are telling us the truth. And judging the truth by facial and hand gestures and expressions 
is a science in and of itself. And it's not a perfect science. You know, you can learn to cheat the lie detector test and lie detector tests, by the way, are not valid in court. They're not, they, they can't be used as evidence. They're more a way of trying to elicit confessions from people and to rattle them so that interrogators can delve further into their their story or their alibi or whatever. And so it's 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 a uh, the, the whole situation is not really judgeable in terms of a courtroom appearance in my opinion. I think that basically this was a welcome to our house by the Senate. And we want to hear what you have to say, but that does not necessarily mean that we're going to buy it or agree with you, but we're going to be pleasant and cordial and respectful. And I think the senators were. I, I think that uh, Graham uh, went off, but he didn't go off on the victim. He went off on his fellow senators, and, and I think he was justified in doing that. Now, how much that helped or hurt, I don't know. It certainly uh, charged the conservative base even more. And everybody was talking about it on the conservative side of the of the lunchroom. What will it do to the liberal side? I don't think much. I, I don't think they much listen, nor do they much care what we have to say. And having said that, I noted that Dr. Ford was very uh, smiley and bright-faced when talking with uh, Senator Feinstein, so and and pretty flat faced when answering other senators. So it it, it seemed to me uh, not dishonest as much as it was just well rehearsed and contrived. It may mean that it was dishonest, or it may mean that she really believes what she was saying and was struggling with the whole concept of presenting it. So it, it's tough to tell and. She said she took a lie detector test, but we don't know how many times. We don't know who with. We don't know what the questions were that were posed. And uh, it certainly wasn't given by somebody who uh, was there to challenge her story. It was given by somebody who was trying to help her become comfortable answering questions in the hot seat. Uh, remember, this is a woman who has had some notoriety in her field. I mean, she is published as uh, as a statistician, as a psychology statistician, in dozens and dozens of research papers. What value they are, I don't know, because I, I don't read that literature and I don't know enough about the field of psychology to to make a judgment call on on her worth as an investigator. It looked to me like she really didn't do much investigation, but more she reviewed the the statistical data that other researchers brought to her, and then she got her name on on these studies. And she's on dozens and dozens of them, and, and uh, more power to her. I mean, she's carved out a little niche for herself in the psychology world and the research world, and she's a professor, so she's she's making a living and taking care of herself and. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So to say that she is uncomfortable with notoriety is, I think, not accurate. And to say that 
And she said those these past two weeks have been the hardest two weeks of her life, other than when she purportedly was molested and almost raped uh, at the age of 15. Uh, This is a woman who I think has had a baby, raised kids, been married, uh, applied for faculty positions, been interviewed, uh, worked on research papers. I mean, she's done some difficult things in her life. And for the past two weeks prior to her testimony to be two of the hardest weeks of her life raises some question on my part as to whether or not she is seeing her role in all of this and the facts of the situation in an objective rather than a subjective manner. I don't know how else I can say it, and and that's not to say that it wasn't a difficult two weeks for her, but she's had several months to prepare. Maybe the preparation has become more intensive in the past two weeks. Maybe the idea that she would have to come before a committee and actually try to convince somebody of her, of the veracity of her story, maybe that was upsetting. And uh, maybe she knew that it would probably not fly. And this would give her some pause and maybe lose her a few friends, and but also make her some friends. So, I mean, she certainly did her best for the left. And she is the darling of the left this week. But I don't think it's going to derail Kavanaugh's vote on the Senate floor. I, I think it's going to the Senate floor and the president in an effort to take more steam out of her her engine has asked the FBI to step in and investigate some of these allegations and talk to some of these other people who are making these allegations. And he's had personal experience with this. And I think a lot of guys who are in high level positions, especially those who have a big mouth like me, are going to have accusations made, true or false, real or imagined. And so I think that it's legitimate to investigate as long as it doesn't drag it past the midterm election. So the FBI, and I saw an agent on TV yesterday, and he said, this should all be wrapped up by the end of the week. Well, you know, somebody's going to say, well, I can't talk to you till next week who wants to slow the process down. But when the FBI calls you, my understanding is you got to go. You got you got to answer them. I may I may be incorrect on that, and if anybody has any info, they are certainly well welcome to call in and let me know. Eight seven seven nine six nine eight six zero zero. That's eight seven seven nine six nine eighty six hundred. Now I looked at how the lawyers prepare a victim or a witness for testimony, and they say to the to the person that's going to be uh, speaking or testifying that you need to refresh your memory. Try to picture the scene and all the objects that were there, the people that that were there, the distances, exactly what happened. Where were you? Where was he? Where was she? Uh, What were you doing? Were you driving, drinking, laying on the bed? And speak in your own words. Well, it's tough to say somebody is speaking in their own words when they're reading 
a statement, that's not speaking in your own words. Reading a statement is something that you have written and edited and rewritten and passed it on to other people to review, including attorneys, when you go into a Senate hearing. And they say, don't try to memorize what you're going to say. Well, if you have months to rehearse this, even if it doesn't come across as being memorized, you're going to have the nitty gritty down of what it is you want to say. And I think that by reading testimony and by sounding as if you're well rehearsed, your testimony sounds too pat and it becomes unconvincing and contrived sounding because you don't know. I mean, you, you can't really challenge somebody in that position and say, wait a minute, are you saying that Brent Kavanaugh was in bed with you, but you don't remember when or where? And uh, so all of this comes into play when you're dealing with a Senate hearing like this. Of course, appearance is important. And you can also use appearance, as I alluded to earlier, to hide facial expressions. Have your hair fall down in your face. Make sure you have something written on the table in front of you so you can look down at it. That way, nobody can see your blink rate. Nobody can see which way your eyes are deviating. Or you can force yourself to look down rather than allowing your eyes to deviate because looking up to the left may indicate one thing, to the right another. Uh, Looking back and forth can indicate lying or searching for a memory that doesn't exist. So all of these things come into play. Of course, speak clearly and uh, be responsive. Swear to tell the truth. Do your best to tell the truth. Do not exaggerate. Don't make overly broad statements. All this, I'm sure, was discussed and rehearsed with Dr. Ford before she came to the Senate. And also the attorneys will tell you to listen carefully to avoid confusion. Now, the, the questions were already pretty well known to Dr. Ford and her attorneys, so she had ample opportunity to review and discuss these questions and give answers. And so this was not really a cross-examination in the classic sense of it. But she still was told to listen carefully to avoid confusion. And I'm sure that if she had some concern, she was told to look down at her papers, which she did. She looked down at her desk frequently. Keep your cool. Don't lose your temper. Well, she's been in the psychology world long enough and teaching as a professor and uh, cooperating with other researchers and in a marriage and relationships that I'm sure she has obtained some level of calm and ability not to react. And another big instruction that the attorneys will give her give you, give me, if we go to court, is respond orally to the questions. Don't respond with your head. Don't shake yes or no. It becomes confusing, especially if you're saying yes and shaking your head no, then that's an indication that you're lying. So 
no head movements. And again, you put a piece of paper down in front of you, and whether there's anything there to read or not, you look down at it as if you're referring to something, which she did. Think before you, you speak. Listen carefully to the questions. Correct mistakes. Do not volunteer information. Don't add more. Don't set yourself up for an error by saying that's all of the conversation or nothing else happened. Say that's all I recall or this is the way that I remembered it happening or these are my recollections. Now, if you're interrupted by the judge or an attorney, stop speaking and listen and wait for further instructions. In the same way in a Senate hearing, if you're under oath, wait until the senator has stopped speaking and gives you the cue to go ahead and answer. Be positive and confident. Of course, I think that Dr. Ford exuded that. I don't think there's any question about that. I think she had that down pat. Follow the rules of the courtroom. Well, the rules change in the Senate, especially in these circumstances, because the rules were negotiated back and forth before she would even come and sit down and meet with the senators. Don't talk to others about the case. And I'm sure that she was cautioned repeatedly about that, and she probably had some hot walkers. Hot walkers, by the way, are the grooms that will walk the thoroughbreds after they've run a race to cool them down uh, so they don't get sick and they don't get cramps and all that. You know, that's like an athlete after they run a race or swim a race, they'll get out and walk around a little bit and cool themselves down, dissipate some of the heat. And of course, a horse is a bigger animal with a lot more body heat to dissipate. So she had hot walkers. So if she was upset, there were people that she had numbers of to call who were professionals at cooling her down and at walking with her verbally or situationally or even physically walking with her across campus or at home and saying, I hear you. So how does that make you feel? Well, can you redirect that feeling? Can you, could you phrase it like this? Uh, is it possible that you could see this more objectively and detach yourself from the situation? Uh, pretend like you're floating on a, uh, in a tub of hot water, warm water, and you're feeling great as you think about these memories. And so she had hot walkers. And, and over, what, July, got August, September, October. So you got three months to prepare. Three months to work on this. Three months to... Uh, Make sure that you sound believable and convince yourself that you're telling the truth and that your memories are accurate. And let's remember that human assessments of each other are not accurate. Emotions are real, but they're not accurate. And we've seen this over and over again in recent years, as the forensic sciences have gotten much, much better, 
And that doesn't mean that everybody who's on trial is uh, being uh, falsely accused, but certainly it does mean that there are a percentage of people who thankfully have forensic evidence that contradicts what witnesses believe they saw or believe they heard or believe they sensed. And the problem with our senses is, of course, is that we have emotional overlays as to what we're experiencing. And so the experience, the reality of it may change in our brain as our emotions become involved. And emotions are real, but they're not very accurate. They're there for a reason. They're there to bond us together, to tell us to protect ourselves, to tell us to run or hide, uh, to tell us that we can trust working with this person or not trust working with this person. And all these things are important. They're important. They're important to our survival. Do you lie? Of course you lie. We all lie. I lie. On average, we tell one or two lies a day. Most frequently, guess what? We lie about our feelings. And they may not even be lies. They may be that we just don't understand where our feelings are coming from. And I've given this, uh, this uh, analogy, this metaphor before. You're driving to work. You're late. You've had three cups of coffee your hair's a mess, or you, you're trying to shave, somebody cut you off, and you're furious, and you want to go up there and cut them off, or shake your finger at them, or yell at them, or whatever, and you get to work, and it takes you 15 or 20 minutes to calm down, but when you look back at it, you say, well, it was some little old lady, and she probably didn't see me, or maybe he was in a hurry and he didn't realize how close he was to me when he cut in front of me. Or maybe I misjudged the distance. Was I really upset with him or with her? I don't think so. I don't even know that person. How can I be upset with somebody when I've had no interpersonal interaction with them? What I'm upset about is that I'm afraid. I'm afraid if I'm going to be that if I'm late for work, I'm going to be docked money. I'm not going to hold on to my patients in my practice or my boss is going to be mad at me or I could be fired because this is the ter third time this week that I'm late. And so I'm really scared about my physical well-being, about my ability to feed myself and take care of myself. That's what I'm upset about. I'm not upset because the guy cut me off. I'm upset because I'm afraid of losing something. What do we lie about? Well, when it comes to our feelings, we may say, you know, I'm a good guy. I give uh, to the charity of my choice once a year. And so that makes up for all of the bad things that I do. Or I go work for Habitat for Humanity for three days every year. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I I'm, I'm, I'm think it's a great thing. But does that make me a charitable person? Or am I lying about that? Am I saying that the feeling I get for those few days a year makes up for all of the negative things that I do by saying no to people, an employee who needs some help, a family member who could use uh, a little money, 
or who is asking me to come over and help them fix a plumbing problem because I can do plumbing. And I say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's your problem. But then I give to Salvation Army. Am I charitable? Am I a giving person? I don't think so. And I think that we're lying about our feelings. And I've had this conversation with doctors in the lunchroom, and they'll try to convince me that they're good people. And one of the doctors is always fussing and carrying on about how these uh, medical legal and uh, personal injury cases extract big money from the insurance companies and the doctors charge outrageous fees for procedures that shouldn't cost but several hundred to a thousand bucks and they'll get ten or twenty thousand for a procedure because they're bilking the insurance company and then i'll say to this doctor well in the 1980s when medicare was paying whatever you charged for your services for your total hip replacement did you feel guilty about that? And now that you think that it was too much money, are you going to give that money back to Medicare? Well, of course they're not. They're not going to do that. So there's, there's a disconnect there between the reality of their willingness to be altruistic and be honest and to repay what was obviously, at, at least at this point in time, an overpayment, and then how they feel about other people when they do something wrong like that. And so their preferences or our preferences and our attitudes and our opinions are going to be what control us unless we have some really high level of objectivity, which is difficult to achieve. Uh, but I think if you're going to be a doctor uh, or a lawyer in court or a judge, uh, You've got to have a certain modicum of this, or you're not going to be able to provide uh, objective services for your clients or your patients or your, uh, the people that present to your courtroom. We also lie about our achievements and our failures. These are commonplace. We hear it in the lunchroom all the time, and one of the guys said, when I challenged him, he said, oh, Bill, it's a lunchroom. We all lie. <laughs> But, you know, it's it, it, it always tickles me when I hear one of the guys say, well, we need to be scientifically objective. And then they'll say something about, well, obviously, people who are homosexual were born that way. <laughs> I'm like, maybe, maybe not. Where's the proof? There is no proof yet. And you're telling me to be scientific. But here you are making a judgment call based on urban lore, emotion, uh, your, your own subjectivities, but you don't have any hard proof for me. You don't have anything to show that there are genetic markers, that there are uh, multifocal areas of the brain that are involved and light up and all these different things. And uh, it doesn't mean that, that you're right or wrong. It just means that you're not being scientific. So you're not being honest. You're not being honest with yourself. Is this a big lie? Uh, no, because it's an opinion. It's a feeling. And of course, the thing that we lie about the most, at least when we're younger, is sex. You know, the guys are going to claim they're doing more than they really are with the girls. And the girls are going to uh, all 
swear that they're chaste and pure. I mean, this this is this is what we experience as adolescents and young adults. What do the philosophers say? Well, it depends on what branch of philosophy you're in. If you're in the religious side of philosophy, like say St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, they'll say it is always wrong to lie. Of course, here's a couple of guys. Well, I don't know about uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, but certainly St. Augustine was a little bit on the uh, uh, on the party side, partying side initially. And so I, I don't know that he was always honest. Is it always wrong to lie? Well, St. Thomas Aquinas says yes. What about the pure philosopher Immanuel Kant? He says yes, it's always wrong to lie. What about Plato? What did Plato say about this? I'm glad you asked me that. You see, it's a little more complicated than it might at first seem. I mean, what it what if by lying you could make people happier or more productive? What about a noble lie that it's necessary to keep a society together? So you can see you can go on and you can find some reasonable just justifications for telling a lie. What if the lie you're telling is not to hurt somebody's feelings that you love? What if your wife says, do you like this dress? You know she's in love with it. You know she thinks she looks like uh, the the best thing since uh, Cheryl Teague in that dress. You don't want to hurt her feelings. So you're going to tell her, yeah, babe, you look good in that dress. That's really, you know, good choice. But that doesn't mean that you believe what you're saying. You may be lying to her to make her feel good. And we do that in marriages. We do that in the workplace uh, to try to get people to cooperate to enlist their support so that you can teach them something or you can say, you know, you did a good job with that, but here's how I would do it a little bit better. So there's different ways to frame this. And as Plato said, it depends on the end. So the, if the end is to make society better, is it okay to lie? That judgment call is something that we all have to make. And so we have to ask ourselves also when somebody like Dr. Ford comes up to the Senate to testify, uh, is she potentially saying something that she's not sure of, but which she thinks will help her cause and her ideals of what society are? So we got a lot to consider when we look at someone like Dr. Ford when she's on the stand. I'm going to grab a cup of Joe. And I'll be right back. Bill, are you with me, bud? Always, Doc. All right. So we're going to, are you going to go get some Joe or are you going to keep working on the studio there? I got buttons to push. I'm a very busy man. He's a button pusher. So Bill's pushing buttons. I'm grabbing coffee. You go change your depends. I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Rescue crews in Palau are trying to free a 15-year-old girl trapped under concrete in her house after it collapsed on her family during the earthquake that spawned a tsunami on Indonesia's Sulawesi Island. An early warning system that could have prevented some of the deaths in the tsunami is stalled in the testing phase. Officials say a high-tech system of seafloor sensors and fiber optic cable has been in the works for five years. It was meant to replace the system set up after an earthquake and tsunami 
in 2004. The death toll from this latest event, over 800 and feared to go higher. One of the women who's accusing Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct has a long history of involvement in legal scrapes. Court records reviewed by the AP find that Julie Switnick has been in six cases in the past 25 years and accused of lying. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727 727- Seven three eight four six four one one seven two seven three eight four six four one one. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted, and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments, so call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. So you consider yourself a do-it-yourselfer, and that may work out well if you're repairing a window or fixing a flat tire, but don't make that mistake if you're planning your retirement. Hi, everybody. I'm Ted Webb here to tell you about Graham Capital Advisors. They're the people that helped me retire at the end of January. I'm so happy I made that decision a few years ago to go with Graham Capital Advisors. David Graham has assembled a great group that has years of experience. And they're there to guide you through the landmines we often run into while planning retirement. David is a master certified estate planner. There's only three in Florida. He has the knowledge and experience to make retirement a pleasant event. Call David today at 800-808-5009 to book your complimentary consultation. And be on your way to a retirement that is worry-free. 800-808-5009. Book your complimentary consultation online at GrahamCapitalAdvisors.com. That's GrahamCapitalAdvisors.com. Thank you for making my dream a reality and publishing my very first book. Karen Notner is author of Is Jesus Your Pearl? You encouraged me, you laughed with me, and you held my hand through the entire process. Karen's publisher is Zulon Press. Do you dream about publishing? Make the dream real with America's fastest-growing Christian book publisher. Your free publishing guide is waiting at christianpublishing.com. Thank you so much to all the wonderful professionals at Zulon Press. Visit Zulon Press at christianpublishing.com. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Today will be partly sunny and warm with record-breaking high temperatures. High today, 94. Partly cloudy and humid this evening, low 75. Then tomorrow, partly sunny skies, warm and humid with a shower or thunderstorm in the area and a high of 93. Look for a thunderstorm around Tuesday afternoon. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren for AM 860, The Answer. bit of Pat Benatar. Hit me with your best shot, baby. Uh, talking about a no good man. I, I happen to be a member of that gender. 
uh, I guess for a lot of women, men are all no good, but I'm not sure how we got into that role. Uh, certainly with my wife, everything's my fault. I don't know about your wife, Bill, but if something goes wrong in the house, it's my fault. If she bumps into a coffee table, it's my fault because I put it there. But I think Pat Benatar is the wounded feminist, from what I can tell. Great musician. Love her songs. So what is lying? We're talking about lying and we're talking about falsifications. We're talking about the Dr. Ford testimony before the Senate this week and Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, lying is to make an intentionally false statement, at least at, at one level. Uh, to make an assertion that is believed to be false to some audience with the intention to deceive the audience about the content of that assertion. Well, you know, you and I can look at somebody like Dr. Ford and say, well, you know what? I don't think she's doing this to try to deceive the Senate. I think that maybe there's something in this that she thinks could have happened. And she also feels that she has a responsibility to her cause to air anything that might be or could have happened or maybe happened in order to try to derail the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh. So is she lying or not? How do you tell? Well, to make a believed not true or a believed false statement to another person under conditions that are such that the person making the statement believes it that the person hearing the statement is justified in believing that the person making the statement believes the statement to be true, and that the person hearing the statement is justified in believing that the person making the statement intends that the person hearing the statement believes that the person making the statement believes the statement to be true. Uh, did you get all of that? <laughs> so we're going to intentionally deceive each other, and how do we do this? And is it just humans? Are humans the only species that is dishonest? No, heck no, heck no. We see the more and more we observe all the other animals on the planet, the more we see lying, stealing, cheating going on. And I, there are even fish that will wait until another fish has left their little nest and go in and steal their pebbles or their shells. So it, it's, it's universal. We all do it. And, and I think that for us, the ability to control that to some degree is what's going to determine whether or not we'll be perceived by our fellow human beings and our pets as well as being truthful or not truthful or being dishonest. The powerful or more effective deceivers. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think about it within the context of my own life, and I see all kinds of people, and some of them I like and some of them I don't, but they all think I love them. They all think that I really care about them. And so, in a sense, that's deceptive. That's not my true feelings, but objectively, it's the way I present myself in a professional setting as best as I can, and it's for a very good reason. I'm deceiving you so that you'll be comfortable and you'll follow my lead when I tell you that you need to take this medicine or have this procedure done or stop that medicine or quit taking all those stupid over-the-counter pills you're popping in your mouth. 
And so I need you to trust me. And in doing so, or in encouraging you to do so, I have to present myself as somebody who is caring and concerned about you, even though I may be thinking about what I'm going to have for supper. Does it mean that I don't care? No, that's an objective caring. Subjectively, I may think that you're a dweeb or whatever, but that's not relevant. And who am I to judge you? After 40 years of practicing medicine, I realized that by and large, it doesn't really do any good for me to judge somebody's personality in a professional setting or to judge their morals or immoralities other than to say, you know, I think that uh, if you're promiscuous, you increase your chances of contracting a venereal disease or getting yourself into scraps where you might get shot by a jealous significant other. So these sorts of things are brought up to me occasionally, and I occasionally will make a comment. The powerless are more effective deception detectors because they're more observant because they got to get out of the way. They're not as big. They're not as strong. So they got to know earlier, presumably, to get out of the way. Now, when we're fighting over food or other basic necessities to survive, then all bets are off. Everybody lies, cheats, steals in order to survive because, well, not everybody, but survival is the first law. As Homer Simpson says, Marge, it takes two to lie, one to lie and one to listen. Well, that's not exactly true. We can lie to ourselves. What do liars do? Or what do we believe liars do? They avert their gaze, they're nervous and coherent, have funny body movements, facial expressions, inconsistent, uhs and errs, flushing, pauses. What do liars actually do? Their verbal immediacy is decreased. And you can do that by looking down at, at some papers on your desk or saying, excuse me, let me check my notes. Let me refer back to that. They give details, logical structure, plausibility, verbal involvement, contextual embedding. All these are decreased. And what's increased are discrepancies, uncertainty, nervousness, vocal tension, frequency, and negative statements. So you can be trained over a period of time, especially if you're a professional who is before the public, a doctor, a lawyer, a judge, uh, an actor or an actress, a college professor, uh, a researcher who is lecturing, all these different ways that you put yourself there out in the public train you how to overcome all of these uh, uh, nuances of body language, of vocal intonations, of uh, errs and ahs, and it, it takes it takes a lot of concentration, a lot of work, and a lot of repetition. You know, when I started doing the radio show, there were a lot more errs and uhs and ahs than there are now. And it takes rehearsal. Now, I don't rehearse verbally the show, but I do rehearse it mentally. So I'll start going over the show uh, midweek, uh, thinking about what it is I want to do, gathering my material, 
reading the data, formulating thoughts, and the two nights before, as I go to bed, I think about the show, and I think about what I'm going to say, and I say it in my head. It doesn't mean that that's exactly what's going to come out, but I've got the groundwork. And then I get up early. I was up at 4.30 this morning, and I'd look over my material, and I think about it, and I'll talk to myself because there's nobody up, so I can get away with that. And I can even get other menial work done, like packing boxes or washing dishes. And I can overcome a lot of the uncertainties that I would have had otherwise had I not rehearsed. So can we detect lies? Probably about half the time, unless we're trained. What percentage of people can actually detect lies 90% of the time? Less than 30%. Are machines any better? Remember what Nixon said, listen, I don't know anything about polygraphs, and I don't know how accurate they are, but I know they'll scare the hell out of people. <laughs> That's exactly what they're meant to do. It's to get you to fess up. Reveal the truth, detect deception. What does a polygraph measure? Respiration rate, heart rate, blood pressure, skin conductance, stress, not deception. It doesn't measure deception. It measures stress. And stress can be induced with pain. So a trick that people use is to put a thumbtack in their shoe under their great toe. And when they're asked one of the, uh, uh, one of the control questions, which is a lie or a truth or whatever, and they want to throw the machine off, they'll push down on the thumbtack so that they have pain. Pain will release adrenaline. Adrenaline will make all of these uh, uh, different measures and techniques light up on the, on the lie detector test because it measures uh, skin impedance, sweat, blood pressure, heart rate. Uh, all these things will change in our respiratory rate. And by the way, I watched Dr. Ford when she was reading her, her, uh, her statement. And her respiratory rate was, was very regular, but it was elevated. It was elevated. And I think that they realized that her coaches realized that she was not going to be able to control her respirations in, an, in a difficult situation like this. And therefore, they told her, breathe frequently, slowly and consistently so that there's no variation. And she has probably done yoga and meditation knowing the psychological community and the West Coast. And so she had that down pretty pat and I was impressed. Well done, well done. There's no data to show that polygraphs are all that uh, reliable uh, and that's why they don't use them in court. And you can beat them. You can beat the control questions by causing some pain. And, and a lot of times the better polygraph interviewers will say, I need you to take off your shoes because they know that you've got a thumbtack in your, in your shoe and take off your socks and get the thumbtack out so you can't fill the desk. Well, that's when you put, you know, you go out and, you know, those little burrs that are stick to your socks and they kind of pinch you when they get up against your skin. We well, you can take one of those and put it between your butt cheeks 
And then if you want to stimulate a little pain, just squeeze when you want to fool the machine, and that'll kick up your... I mean, there's different things you can do to, to simulate pain. You can bite your cheek. You can dig your fingernails into your wrist or your thigh or whatever. A good interviewer is going to notice what you're doing. So you have to be kind of sneaky if you're going to do that. You can press your toes hard against the floor. You can pant. You can breathe heavy. What about when you want to calm down? What, what about when you want to tell a lie? If you know how to meditate, you can meditate yourself into a state of serenity or calmness. You can control your heart rate and your respiratory rate. If you don't know how to meditate, you can count sheep. Or you can think of a pleasurable situation as you tell a lie. You can feel, talk yourself into feeling like you're floating on a, in a warm swimming pool or that you've just had two beers and you're relaxed watching some football. You can take drugs. What drugs can you take? You can take muscle relaxers. You can take antidepressants. You can take beta blockers to slow your heart rate down. There's a lot of things that you can do to fool the test. And you can rehearse as well. You can go over it and over it and over it and over it until you're comfortable with that what you're saying is the truth. So things like nervousness, sweating, fast or faltering speech, avoiding eye contact, exaggerated facial expressions, touching the nose or behind the ear. And if you notice Dr. Ford, had her hair in front of her, and I'm sure that this was a well-planned ploy. As the hair fell in front of her, she could use that when she was uncomfortable with what she was saying to brush her hair behind her ear and touch her face without being obvious about it. So there's little tricks that you can do, little things that you can uh, pull out of the bag to fool the machine and to fool the interviewers, to fool the jury, to fool the Senate, to fool the public. Finger tapping, fidgeting, foot tapping, slouching or slumping. And none of these are 100% because some people get nervous when they're being interviewed. They don't like being in public. There's a story of one woman who was extremely upset. She lived out in the country. She did not want to testify. The attorneys couldn't figure out why not. And they said, well, listen, we'll come pick you up so that you don't even have the stress of driving. She was immediately relieved because she lived in the country and she didn't like driving into the big city. It scared her. Then she was fine. She was comfortable and she was a great witness. We have to look at the timing and duration and not a normal pace. And when somebody's reading a statement, it's rehearsed. So their timing and their pace is going to be highly regulated. And it's going to be difficult to judge whether or not it's the truth. You can also see delays between emotional gestures and expressions and words. You can see somebody saying yes with their mouth and shaking their head no. So you have to match the words to the verbal and intonations to the physical gestures and the facial expressions. And some people, when they're nervous, they'll limit their answers 
to mouth movements instead of their whole face. And when we smile, a phony smile is when we smile without our eyes. When we really smile, a true smile, you know, our, our whole forehead and our eyes and everything are involved. But if we just give somebody a little, you know, turned up ends of the, of the uh, mouth of the lips, that may be just a, you know, yeah. Okay. This is up yours, buddy. That sort of thing. You know, I, I'm going to smile at you, but I don't really believe I'm being nice to you or that I'm happy with you and I don't really like you. And they say guilty people get defensive. That's not always true. You can have a sociopath and they will think that it's the other person's fault no matter what. You can look at body language, turning away, slumping down in the chair, putting your head on the table. putting objects between you and the questioner, a statement, a written statement is an object, and it's between you and the people who are questioning you. That's an object that you put between you and your questioners to make you feel comfortable, to make you feel protected, to make you feel that you're telling the truth. That's why when you go into a courtroom, the rules of court are that a witness can't bring, unless you're some expert and they're asking you to refer back to your notes as in an autopsy, then you are not supposed to have anything with you when you take the stand so that you don't have anything between you and your questioner, between you and the judge, between you and the jury, that you're speaking directly to the people that are interested in what you're saying. So we have to look at all that. As some people will have it down so pat that they'll overcompensate by telling events in a very precise chronological order. And we don't have that ability. We do not have that ability, the overwhelming majority of us, to be 100% accurate in recalling an event or the timing of an event. And that's why when the police say, well, what time did you leave home? It was exactly 8.30 this morning. Well, how do you know? Well, I looked at my watch. Now, what percentage of people, as they rush out the door with a cup of coffee in their hand and their razor, their electric razor in their pocket and their keys jingling and trying to get everything to go or their hairbrush and their makeup kit, are going to stop and take a look at their watch. How many people wear a watch these days? I mean, we got time on our phones. You're not going to pull your phone out and say, it was exactly 8.30 when I left the house this morning. Most people are going to say, well, usually I leave the house between 8.15 and 8.45. So overly specific. Not having the names of places and the times and the locations. These are less frequently mentioned when we don't have the truth. It's a tough situation, and whether or not Dr. Ford really believes what she said, only she knows that. But certainly there's enough in what I saw in her testimony to say that even if she thinks she's telling the truth, she is so rehearsed, had so many props and ploys between her and her uh, questioners, and so many ways to overcome signs of lying, like face-touching, blinking, using glasses that would hide some of her eye movements, all those things. But that's the way it is. 
that's our system, folks. At least you get the opportunity to come up there and talk with the senators. Oh, boy. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MP. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 